Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, a corner for parents and caretakers fighting and surviving pediatric cancer. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hi, welcome to Family Chemotherapy. This is Adriana Lewin. I'm your host. Today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Allie Neenan. She is an advocate turned researcher who's committed to making the world a better place for children with cancer. As a college student, she volunteered to raise money for childhood cancer research and learned about its devastating impacts on the whole child and the whole family. Now she's studying to be a pediatric psychologist so she can help make sure that every family affected by childhood cancer receives the mental health support they need and deserve. So thank you for joining me today, Allie. I'm so excited to have you as a guest. Um, just so I kind of tell people how I came across your information. I saw you on Instagram. What is your, off the top of my head, I don't remember, what's your Instagram um, tag? Right. So it's at Alexandra Neenan and I can spell that it's, uh, at A L E X A N D R A dot N E E N A N on Instagram. Thank you. Yeah. So I came across, uh, your Instagram profile and I was like, Oh my gosh, this person has all this wealth of knowledge for pediatric cancer and mental health. And, I started following you and copying everything that you, <laughs> that you post. So um, that's basically how I came across your information. And so I'm really excited to have you on here because you and I have kind of talked back and forth uh, for several months now, just mental health topics in this and pediatric cancer. And so uh, it's been really interesting conversations and I just can't wait to share with other people what you have to share. So um Allie, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got plugged into the world of pediatric cancer? Absolutely. So thank you so much for that introduction and for having me here. So I'll start in the present. I'm a third year PhD student studying clinical psychology. So I want to become a psychologist to work with kids as well as their parents with a focus on pediatric cancer. And really what got me interested in that was my experiences fundraising in college. So this was back in about 2015. Some of my friends had started a chapter of Lemon Club, which I imagine not a lot of people have heard of, but it's actually one of the programs of Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation. And they are a huge charity. They do amazing work in the world of pediatric cancer. They have a ton of different programs. Of course, they fund research. Um, they have a sibling support program. Right now they have like a COVID emergency fund. And then they also support Lemon Club. And what that is, is basically students at the high school and the college level, if they create a club on campus, they can register with Alex's to be like an official Lemon Club. And they can have the support of their staff and resources to help them in fundraising. And that just seemed like such a cool opportunity for me. I actually didn't know anyone who was affected by pediatric cancer at the time. So it was very much just a way to get involved on campus um, and kind of spend time with friends. And over the years, the club has grown. So it's still active. They're still sort of fighting through COVID to do virtual events. Yeah. And I actually just checked in with them earlier this week. And in the past five years, really just through sort of fundraising among other students, 
they've raised about $17,000. for That's amazing. So it's been a really cool thing to be a part of. Wow. It's awesome that you, you just kind of fell into this, you know, into pediatric cancer and just what the areas of needs really have been. And as your specific area of study, it, you know, it's gotta be interesting to, to just kind of stumble across a group like this and be like, Oh, mental health also like what's going on here with mental health. So. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that I did because I didn't know anyone personally was I would go online and I think just sort of being the generation that I'm in, it really occurred to me like, let's look on Facebook, let's look on Instagram, Mm -hmm. let's see what people are sharing. And I was really amazed to see, you know, like the pages that parents will set up to kind of document their kid's journey, just how consistently and how like dedicated parents were to raising awareness for childhood cancer and to like raise awareness for this need for research. As someone who was naive to it, I just had no idea. Like it made sense to me that people would update their friends and their family about like how their own child was doing. Mm -hmm. But it was just so common to see parents being really, really active in wanting to help other kids and wanting to just change the situation of how going through treatment is so hard and how so many kids don't survive. And while they're sort of going through this massive storm in their own life, for them to want to advocate for other people, that really, really spoke to me. And I think that's a pretty like unique piece to my own research that I'm really just getting started in, is that advocate role, that sort of role as like a member of the childhood cancer community. Mm -hmm. I really want to sort of help deepen understanding of like, how does that help parents cope? with the cancer experience. Wow. That's fascinating. You know, I haven't really sat back and kind of analyzed our community like that, where everyone just kind of turns around and you're right. We do. We start advocating for families. And it's like, I know for, for us, if I advocate now, I know that a lot of the, the benefits of advocating isn't going to necessarily directly impact my child and his outcome, but it's for the betterment of the people that come behind us, you know, the people who will be diagnosed in the years to follow and hoping that they have better than we have had. And so, but I've never really sat back and, and analyzed that, like the majority of us do get very, very involved. So yeah, that's really interesting. And it was one of those things where it then kind of made me want to know more because clearly if there's such a need to change the experience, it's like, well, what are families going through? And that was when I sort of started to take it upon myself to learn more about how like kids have to undergo treatment for years. And there are these lifelong side effects and every member of the family is affected and things like depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder really are prevalent for everyone who has to go through this. And I think that was when I kind of started realizing that there was a possibility of a career in this area. Because I think, especially among the students that I was working with, a lot of them were pre-med. And so I think it's a really obvious connection of, oh, if you want to help children with cancer, you could become a doctor or like you could become a medical researcher. Mm -hmm. And that just wasn't quite my interest. 
And as someone studying psychology, I was like, well, I can help raise money. But it really took me a while to realize, oh, like I could actually support these families in a meaningful way. Yeah, that's, I mean, the mental health aspect is so important. And I do feel like having walked through that path already, I do feel that that is the one area that is easily overlooked. Um, you mentioned the whole family and the, the siblings, and I absolutely 100% agree. And I actually am pretty surprised, like you're the expert in this and I'm the expert in the experience, <laughs> you know? Um, and so I was really surprised to see that there was really as much research out there for there, uh, for this, but also surprised to see that, that there's not as there's not more research on helping families. So it's like this, like, oh, there's quite a bit, but there's really, there should be more. <laughs> right. And there are some things that are so challenging to research, I think, especially thinking about siblings, because even before COVID, it wasn't necessarily common for them to be like at the hospital. And so you think about things of how do we enroll families? How do we enroll siblings in studies to be able to do this? That can sometimes be a challenge. And again, especially during COVID, we're seeing that. But that was part of why I created the Instagram page is because I wanted to be able to share research with families, to be able to share the things that I was reading it was kind of like, well, I'm reading this anyway, let's share this in a way that might help people. But it was also to be able to do some outreach and to make some connections so that if I wanted to do studies throughout my time in grad school and really even beyond, that there would be people who could see these study advertisements and share them within their communities. Um, I think it's really, really important to be creative in how we engage in research because especially for families who are dealing with pediatric cancer, it's not like that's something that's on their mind, right? To be participating in mm -hmm. a research study. Like we really need to kind of take that responsibility as the researchers to do outreach as best as possible and to think outside the box where we can. Well, that's awesome that you did start Instagram because that's how, you know, you reached one person. <laughs> You've reached more than one person, but you know, um, I just. I really appreciate and admire what you are doing because being on the inside, I could see how it can be too close to home for us to do the legwork and the research. And so um, having people who are equally as passionate and not having the, the trauma, like the trauma baggage, you know, um, right. to go along with that and to have like that objective perspective is so, so helpful. Um, so what would you say are your goals long-term for working in the world of pediatric cancer? Right. I really want to help kind of raise the standard, which I know that you and I have talked about that there's been a lot of effort in the last 10, 20 years or so to try and make it standard for families to have some level of access to psychosocial care throughout the experience, as well as throughout survivorship or bereavement. Mm -hmm. And I really wanna just help keep raising that up 
And one period of time that I think is especially important is right around the diagnosis, even like leading up to the diagnosis and just knowing from the things that I've read, from stories that I've seen and heard, just how chaotic and confusing that time is, trying as much as possible to give parents the information that they need to support their kids, to get them through those first few weeks, to just sort of reduce all of the noise because the problem itself is so hard. That diagnosis itself is so hard and anything else that can be reduced during that time is so, so critical. And I think one really big important piece that I wanna help just on like the education side is making sure that families understand like what is trauma? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot that I didn't really understand about it before grad school. And one of the explanations that's really stuck with me is just how any kind of traumatic event, really by definition, it it violates our expectations of how the world is and how we are and how we exist in the world. And as a result of that, our mind is sort of forced to take on this task of making sense of that, where either we can adopt the belief that the world is a scary, chaotic, unpredictable place, and what does that mean? Or we could adopt the belief that we are bad people and chaotic, horrible things are going to happen to us, and what does that mean? Or potentially we might be able to move forward with some sort of new set of beliefs that helps us adapt. Maybe possibly we could move between those phases, right? There's so many ways that an individual person can react to any kind of trauma. And then I think about the layer of how parents are expected to be, I think, especially in our culture. I admit I'm not a parent. There's things, there's a lot of things that I don't know. But I see how if a kid's like so much gets a diaper rash, right? Parents are blamed. You should have had this diaper. You should have had this product. You Mm -hmm. shouldn't have done that. And we really, I think more than ever with social media, we really have this culture of blaming parents for everything. Mm -hmm. So you have those two realities that we're all just kind of living in. And then you add on a cancer diagnosis. And to me, it just makes sense that among the many things that happen, there's just this avalanche of guilt. You could have the most confident, self-assured, well-supported parent, but in that context of all those things coming together, it's like, of course, you're going to feel guilt. And it happens differently for everyone. I'm not saying it's a hundred percent of the time, right? But certainly it just it just makes sense. And I think for someone that parents can trust to be able to tell them, these feelings are not a sign that it's actually your fault. These feelings are not a sign that it's something you did. It's just a consequence of being a human who's having to go through this experience. You know, it's interesting you say that because, you're right. There is a lot of guilt. And, um, when my child was newly diagnosed, I <laughs> like my procrastinator expert self over here, I managed to need to get like 24 hours of continuing education done. And I had to do it in the state of mind, 
right after a diagnosis. Right. And I'm like, well, at least I had gotten like, I think maybe 10 hours done or something, but I was like, I still have all of these hours left to get done. And I have a month before they're due. And now I'm dealing with learning my child's diagnosis, learning the treatment, learning what that means for my family and, you know, all that entails like making the time when you're not even fully there, you know, um, emotionally and mentally, but there was one CE, um, continuing education course that was about critical illness. And it did go into depth about how people take the trauma and they process having a critical illness diagnosis. And you're right. Like people will try and make sense out of it, whether it's, um, all things happen for a reason, um, or this is a punishment from God, um, trying to really understand why something of this magnitude is happening to them. And then the guilt of it, you know, um, I draw childhood cancer does such an awesome job of depicting what families actually feel in just like a quick picture, you know, like a little drawing that he made. Um, and so one of those is like the guilt, you know, the guilt, like, did I eat something? Was it something when he was in my womb? Was it, you know, did I go too close to a power line or something, (laughs) like something completely ridiculous? Like, okay, maybe I had, um, maybe I had some medicine while he was in, in utero or whatever. Right. Um, when he was a fetus in my, in my belly. And so all of those questions, there's a lot of guilt with that. And then there's the existential guilt because I actually saw somebody post, um, once their child did pass away from cancer, they posted something along the lines of like, this is my fault. And my heart broke. Like it literally broke into a million pieces because that is a truth that that mother believes that something that she has done created cancer in her child, which is so far from the truth, you know, but we're constantly doubting our responsibility because as a parent, I mean, that is your job. You're supposed to take care of your child and it's like, you feel like a failure, a failure, you know, not being able to protect your child from something so severe and not even knowing how it happened. And as a mom, you're like, well, if my child has a rash, like you mentioned, I know I need to try and cut back on my dairy, cut back on my, you know, on the acidic food, whatever. Right. Like you, you kind of have this, if I do a, then B will happen, but that's not the case. And in this world. And so, yeah, guilt is definitely a huge thing. And at the beginning of the diagnosis, um, huge, like it is something that I think every mother is probably thinking about at some point, whether they allow it to sit and become an actual, like toxic thought in their mind, or if they, in passing, say, maybe it's something I did. And they they have the ability to say, no, that's, you know, that's not right. That like, 
that's illogical to think that way. So yeah, thanks for, for sharing about that. So what else? Continue. I like totally cut you off. <laughs> sure. I am trying to remember because I think that was kind of the gist that I wanted to get at in terms of things that really quickly come to mind regarding the types of support that parents need right around that diagnosis. I think I did allude to as well, just supporting children because for a lot of parents, there is their diagnosed child and siblings, mm-hmm. right? And trying to balance things as basic as how are my other kids going to get to school while mm-hmm. I'm now at the hospital and, you know, maybe the other parents at work or whatever the situation is to how do I tell my children about this and how do I help my kids stay connected when we're separated? There's so many needs. And one of the things that I really appreciate that has been happening more and more is that it is becoming, again, more that standard of care to be assessing for these things with families, to be sitting down with a social worker or with somebody who's qualified to go through and figure out, like, what do you need? Because it really should just be the assumption that families can't get through this alone. You know, for most families, the best case scenario is that there are two parents. One of them's now essentially a full-time caregiver, right? So trying to meet all of the needs of that family, you're going to have to bring in some kind of community support and being able to orchestrate that when your kid now has this life-threatening diagnosis, you're going to need help, right? It's just another one Mm -hmm. of those things of yes, everyone's situation is different. And potentially there may be people who have tons of family nearby who jump right in. But in general, this is not something that parents can navigate on their own. And being ready to kind of step up with that help and thinking about ways to coordinate that as effectively as possible. That's definitely another thing that I appreciate that the field is doing and something that I want to be involved in myself. That's awesome. You know, when I think back on the days of getting my child's diagnosis, like I don't really remember. I do remember speaking to the social worker, but I had to initiate that conversation. I had to like, in my mind, it's just the way that I function, but no one ever reached out to me. I was like, okay, who do I talk to about this? And you know, where do I get my resources from? And so I reached out, talked to a social worker, social worker, did ask like, where do you need help there? The thing is though, um, a lot of social workers kind of limit. They're like, well, we can only give you help with X amount of organization. So let's just really figure out the top priorities. Well, you're in the middle of a crisis. I don't know what my top priorities are, you know? So even during the time, like the first few weeks, the first few months, honestly, like everything is just a blur to me. Like, I remember a lot of people asking me what I needed for help. And I just kept responding. I don't know. I don't really know right now. Can I get back to you? Because I feel a little overwhelmed by everybody offering to help. And I don't know where to delegate help to, and I don't know what I need help with, you know? Um, but yeah, so the help aspect, it definitely is really important, but it's so like the timing of it is just difficult. So I don't know how um, the mental health social worker field, you know, how they bridge that gap because you know that there's a need, 
but a lot of these parents are still in crisis mode. So they don't know what that need is. The other thing I wanted to kind of piggyback on that you said was, um, addressing, helping, you know, the whole family, basically when you've got siblings and whatnot. And I, what I do appreciate about our initial diagnose, like when we had the, the diagnosis, our initial, um, child life specialist, she was phenomenal. She offered to sit down and talk to my child about the diagnosis and try and explain it to him in a way that they're trained to do right with younger kids. Luckily, you know, before they had sat down to talk with him, I had spoken to my child already. I mean, how do you not tell your child immediately, you know, that something's going on when there's definitely an obvious shift in the mood in the room? Like they pick up on our attitudes and our emotions and our feelings, you know, and I know a lot of parents aren't even, they, they think that our children are oblivious, but our kids can read us better than an adult can read us, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, you know, I, I had to share it with my child, but I do appreciate that there are people who are able to sit down and, and explain things to the family. So going back to what you were saying, making it a standard of care and addressing the whole family as a system, like that's amazing. That's definitely necessary. And it's definitely, um, something that every hospital should be putting into place. But I also think they need to be, um, gently reminding the parents of their ability to help and how they can help because, you know, it's like, Hey, we're here. Just let us know if you need help. But yeah. So I don't know if that makes any sense. It does. And one of the things that I think about and that I really want to address is that when this diagnosis happens, parents are kind of forced to take a backseat in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. where things that we all take for granted of being able to control that goes away. And there are things that parents might not know that they can control. Like you and I were talking about when kids have to get poked, so they have to go through procedures, being able to talk the child through that and kind of come up with a plan for how to tackle it. Um, Things like watching a video or blowing bubbles to kind of distract from that poke or Mm -hmm. choosing how they sit so they don't have to be held down. These are things that there's quite a bit of research on that almost no parent would know unless they're told. And parents sort of have just been put in this mindset of, I got to let go of control. I can't control this. And so being able to come back in and just offer that little piece of here's something you actually can control because that's just not where that mindset probably is for a lot of people. And that's something that I really want to look into further is how our parents adjusting to this sort of lack of control and where do they perceive control and where can we sort of give them back just that little bit of something on the day-to-day level to just get through each moment a little bit easier. Yeah, for sure. You know, as I mentioned, my child had, 
he did really like pretty well, especially as the weeks progressed, he did really well in getting his port accessed. And we at first started out with a child life specialist. And then when we moved, I remember asking, um, before he got accessed, I was like, can we have a child life specialist please? And they were just like, what? <laughs> like you need a child life specialist. And I'm like, yeah, like he's only at that time he was three. He had just turned four. And I'm like, this is really hard on him, you know, but, um, luckily I guess, I don't know if it's watching another child life specialist kind of work with him to learn how to distract him, but then also knowing, okay, I can't force him to do some of the things, even though he has to do it. Um, so how do I kind of persuade my child <laughs> to cooperate, you know? And a lot of that was like you said, giving him a lot of choices back and, um, that helped with him. He was kind of the abnormal four-year-old who would sit and he was about to get a poke. And literally it was, it came down to just in case, you know, people are listening and they don't have, they haven't tried these methods. It was down to, okay, you know, you're about to get a pokey. Um, do you want, like, I literally would say, do you want to see the needle? And he would say, yes. And I know like every time the nurse would get ready to access his port. And I was like, he wants to see the needle. Like you have to show him the needle. This is a big, important step in his, you know, getting his port access. You, you miss that step. It's gonna, it's all going to fall apart. Um, so yeah, they would show him the needle that every time they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm showing him this thing. Cause they always like go in and they hide it. You know, they're like, we don't want him to see. Um, and I'm like, no, he has to see it. And then he would, I would say, okay, do you want to, do you want to, um, do you want them to count down or do you want them to count up or do you want no counting basically? And he would say, you know, I want them to count. And then do you want up or down? And they would tell him down from what number from five or from 10. And it literally was like giving him as much control and detail on how he wants somebody else to do it. And, um, he, he would do fine. Like he would do that process at times. And then sometimes I would say, especially at the beginning, when I could tell he was really anxious about it, I would say, Hey, do you want to watch a movie? Would you like to listen to a, like a movie with music that you can sing along to that you can show the nurses what song you really like, you know, something to distract him and keep his face turned away, even though he still had to know when the needle will go in. So he would stop, pause, look, and then go back to watching his show, you know? Um, and that seemed to work and he kind of got into the groove, into a routine after a while, but you're right. Like there are a lot of parents, like you had mentioned that were posting, like they, the norm is that they have to hold their kid down. I can understand for sure. Like when it's like, a a younger kid, right? Like you've got an infant, you have to hold them down. There's no way you can reason with them. Right. But once they start getting into that, like three-year-old and up, you can give them as much control in the situation as possible. And they'll still be scared and you validate, oh, wow, they're still, you know, yeah, it's okay. It's scary. I know it's scary for me too. Like we can breathe through it, right? One, two, three, take a deep breath. You know, like any little teeny tiny coping mechanism to like keep them calm basically um, is what kind of worked for us. So, yeah. Absolutely. And these are the things that you just don't know until you research them. I'll say there's a resource that I'll share with you after this. I can share links that I actually 
found through Instagram. They're called, I think it's the Meg Foundation for Pain. And they have all these handouts and all these tools so parents can develop their own plans with their kids. And it's all based on the research of how distraction can be really effective and how kids like to have some amount of choice whenever they can. And I've looked through the website and it's really cool. It's really accessible. And I love hearing like the level of specificity and, and the plan that you guys put together. Um, because anything like that, that can just help make things a little bit easier for kids. Some days it really is about those tiny victories. It really is. It's like, yay, we finished getting port access and you didn't cry. You know, like there, there was actually, when we were about halfway through, there was actually, he got into this group where he started making it a joke. Um, and I'm like, what, what four-year-old laughs right after they get their port access? My child, my child would literally go, and like we were all expecting him to burst into tears like crying so like I'm ready to like jump in and like try and be a soothing mother and the nurses are all like and then he just starts laughing he's like "Ah!" I was like oh my gosh like you are something else kid like you are truly amazing because we all thought you were about to like lose it because you got your port access but yeah, <laughs> the little things, it's just the little things for them, the small victories, um, which makes it like when you learn to do kind of back to your point, when you learn to do that all up front, it makes each and every port access a little more easier as you go along. Even if they are afraid, if they learn how to cope through the fear, it will make it much easier each time, but the more that you struggle and wrestle and force them into doing, even though, yes, obviously they have to do it, but when you don't give them any control, it will make it so much more difficult for them. And they will fight you each and every other time harder and harder. And it will become just a nightmare to get the port accessed, you know? And so like you were mentioning earlier, like learning how to get that at the front end, like that education and that support at the front end so that the rest of their treatment isn't just incredibly, you know, difficult, I guess is the best word I could say to, to that. Exactly. I can, I can only imagine what it's like to be in those shoes of walking through that process, but just as a general thought for most people, we don't really have a frame of reference for what it's like for a kid to get their port accessed, right? It's this Mm -hmm. weird device in the chest. They're going in with this vertical needle. And so I think it's very easy to sort of only see it as like, this is a horrible thing, right? Mm -hmm. And to not even know, like, it could even be made easier because it's happening in this hospital room with your sick child everything's been so scary. It's almost like, why would it even cross someone's mind that you could make this easier? Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, one of the other things that you did mention um, that I want to kind of transition into is the role of activism on families. Um, do you feel that it helps families cope through the diagnosis? And if so, how? 
Right. That is a fantastic question that I'm trying to answer through my research. Because if the answer is yes, then I would love to be able to develop interventions and develop support programs that really feature activism as the main piece. And so just to clarify for anyone listening, when I say activism, I mean pretty much anything that a parent could do to benefit children with cancer as a whole or the childhood cancer community as a whole. So I actually just wrapped up with my master's thesis, which is a study that I plan to publish within the next few months. And it was the first of what I hope will be many studies on this topic. And it was a pretty basic study. So it was just a survey that we asked parents to fill out several different questionnaires about their activism behaviors, about various um, psychological variables and how they cope with the cancer experience. And we also asked parents to provide responses to some open-ended questions. And so starting with the open-ended piece, I will say there were quite a few parents who did report that they personally felt like they were benefiting from their experiences by making a difference for the community as a whole and being able to connect with other families. And so I think that's definitely a really promising first step. Another thing that we found kind of on the more quantitative level, so looking at like numbers and statistics, is we found that um, the more types of activism that parents had been involved in. So we asked 15 different things, like have you done this uh, to benefit children with cancer? And it ranged from really simple things like sharing information online and talking to a friend to really complex things like being a leader in an organization that benefits children with cancer. And we found that the more parents were involved, the higher their reported level of hopefulness was. So it's unclear wow. like what the directionality is there. Is it that people who are more hopeful are more inclined to get involved with activism? Or is it that activism makes people more hopeful? Or is it both? But those are some findings that for me definitely are encouraging and that make me really want to do more research into this to see like if we were to do an intervention and actually try to increase parents' sense of hope or some other aspect of their coping, would that actually be helpful for them in a way that we could measure across time? Wow. That's really amazing, you know, and which comes first, like the hope or the activism? Like, I, that's a really great question. And I hope you really get some answers on that because I think that would be so helpful to, to the families, you know, that are going through this. Like, if there is a direct causation versus correlation, like, that would be amazing to know. Like, hey, by the way, if you do this, this will actually boost your, your hope level or, you know, your overall feeling of peace during this really hectic and traumatic experience. Um, one of the things that, you know, I wanted to kind of touch base with you on this because we've, I shared a little bit with you about my, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've had a really long night. Sorry. So like my words no are like very elementary because we had a really bad storm last night and I'm like, <laughs> so, um, I'm 
one of the things I guess I asked you was how, like if there was research on what the, the older kids are saying now, like the survivors, children survivors are saying about how their story was shared on social media. And so just kind of, you know, through the story, basically we were both talking about it during um, childhood cancer awareness month. And there are tons and tons of graphics of, you know, that people create that give statistics and, and really valuable information. And there are people who are posting very um, graphic pictures of their kids in a very vulnerable state. And as a therapist, when I worked with teens, I had several teens basically complaining that they wanted their parents to stop posting things about them because it's their life. You know, even if it was my child made an A on my test or, you know, they didn't get into college. It's like, they wanted that control over their image online. And so one of the questions is like, where's the fine line? Because every parent at this point is now, they basically, it's like the standard, you create this page for your child to give medical updates and whatnot. And, um, GoFundMes and whatnot, right? It's like, it still shares a story. And I will say like, I've had a struggle with learning what that boundary is because there's that level of, well, he, my child is only this age. How much really will this affect him in the long run? And I like to see research. I like to know like, Hey, by the way, research has been done on this. And it says, if if you do this, the likelihood of your child resenting this behavior now in 10 years is very high. Then I would be like, oh, I definitely, you know, need to be more mindful of respecting his privacy. And so my husband, on the other hand, he is much more, um, he's just a very private person. And so he would help balance that out with me. And we would have these conversations often about where's that fine line? Because he's like, if I were to Google, if you have a child and you were to Google that person's name, it will show up on GoFundMe, like on a Google search as one of the top ones listed. And what does that mean for our kids, right? Like our children who may have had to do deal with childhood cancer at a very young age. And by all means, you know, there are some obviously who have very physical scars and there are others who have more scars that are internal, like whether it be, you know, cognitive delays from radiation or from all the chemo or, um, just even the, the trauma, right. Um, the depression and the anxiety from from going through cancer. So if that child, let's say 10 years out survives, um, pediatric cancer and he's amongst his peers, his teenage friends. And let's say like for my, my child, one of the questions was if my child wanted to date a girl, she could absolutely log on to Google and find all his information about him and like 
how am I respecting his privacy, you know, to tell his story? Obviously, I mean, I'm always going to encourage my child to tell whoever he dates that that is part of his history, because I think there's a little more, you know, risk um, associated with being a childhood um, cancer survivor. But that level of privacy, and I just, you know, that he, he has a right to a certain level of privacy and what that means for him in his future. Because right now I might be innocently sharing things with people, but I'm not seeing the long-term side effects because there's no research on it, right? There's like not really any data available other than the research that has been done, which is on non-cancer kids, right? But that's a little different because it's, you know, the research on non-cancer kids, basically just to summarize, it says when parents post things about, you know, that child as a young kid, there's not so much, um, there's not an issue with teenagers. They're like, oh, whatever, you know, that was my mom asking for help or wanting to show off um, what their accomplishments are and whatnot. But the teenagers were completely like, they were demanding some privacy and some control. They're like, I want to be the one to decide what my image is going to be online. And so going back to like, what do we do now with these kids who are dealing with pediatric cancer? You know, like these pictures are hard to see even as a non, you know, as a non-pediatric cancer family, add it, you know, add in, families who are already going through it. Like what about that child who 10 years from now, if he looks back at his pictures, like, is he going to be re-traumatized seeing his pictures? Is he going to be triggered every time that he sees that picture? He or she, I'm saying he, cause you know, my child is a boy, but, um, you know, and so that was like one of the conversations that we had. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Sorry. I know it kind of was my long winded way of asking, what are your thoughts on this? (laughs) And I think, I think you outlined pretty much all of the major like risks and concerns, right? In in a way that honestly I couldn't. I will offer my perspective sort of past me that's kind of led me here, which is that part of the reason why I'm so interested in the activism work is because time after time I would see parents sharing these photos of their kids that are, like you said, graphic, that are are hard to see. And I think from my perspective, just knowing how people are online, even though there is a really noble purpose behind it, a lot of the time, mm-hmm. yeah, people are cruel. And it's just another burden on parents in particular, and yeah, potentially their kids down the line. And pretty much always the captions that would go with these photos would indicate, I am doing this to raise awareness. I am doing this because what my child is experiencing isn't okay. And what that really pushed me to wonder is, can we provide parents with an opportunity to raise awareness and to feel like they are making a difference in a way that doesn't add another burden? So Mm -hmm. that was really the question that drove me to go into clinical psychology. And there was just this assumption that raising awareness is really, really important to parents. 
and it can be burdensome. How can we maximize the benefit and minimize the burden? And it's hard because there isn't research. And given that there is this really sort of value driven reason behind sharing, it's very well possible that kids may perceive that differently down the line. And there are still risks. And so from my perspective, I really wanted to develop these other opportunities. Yes, for parents to raise awareness and to make a difference, but to do it in a way that's directly and measurably beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And kind of what happened was I figured that there would be research talking about the benefits of activism, or at least just the fact that it's happening. And there was practically nothing. And oh, so wow. it became clear to me really quickly, like, I have to do this research first to just sort of establish, like, how is activism happening in this community? And like, what is it associated with? Mm-hmm. And then as like a next step, I can think about these interventions and I can think about offering these opportunities in a way that is based on the research and based on evidence and not just based on assumptions that I'm making. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you kind of, you got to lay the foundation work, you know, because then other Absolutely. people are going to be like, where is she getting this information from? <laughs> right. So yeah, to keep it very scientific, basically. Um, but yeah, I just find like, that's, that's definitely a struggle uh, in the community to know what that, what the fine line is, you know, and I, by, by any means, I am not passing judgment because I have someone in my corner constantly telling me "Mm, that might be too much. Like you need to rein it in, you know? Um, I have a hard time figuring out where that line is too. And, um, I do know that just from like, like I mentioned that clinical experience of dealing with teenagers, it's always been something that's been in the back of my mind. Like, how is this going to affect my child in the future? And not only my child, but like, you know, I'm assuming my kids are all younger. Like my oldest one is six and my now I can officially say my childhood cancer survivor, um, kid, he is four years old, you know? So the way that he, they are impacted as a family, they're a little more sheltered because I'm homeschooling and, um, they don't have the exposure Uh, in school, but there are some kids who still go to school during treatment. Not that it's usually recommended, but some, you know, some doctors are completely okay with it if you're okay with it. And so you've got some kids going to school, um, during treatment and you've got some kids, uh, the siblings who are also maybe still in school and everything that is being communicated online is there for the entire world to see. And so, you know, you walk into school and you no longer have any privacy or one of the posts that you also had posted at the beginning, you know, when I first started following you was the amount of kids that get bullied, you know, not only does a cancer child get bullied, I'm probably, I'm going to, you know, take a leap forward and say, you're probably going to have some kids bullying the siblings too, especially in grade school. Cause you know, grade school kids can be <laughs> really yeah. wonderful. They can be really harsh. Absolutely. So yeah, it's that activism that 
it's definitely needed. And I like, like you said, how do you really um, optimize that, that effect of, wow, like this is actually really something really bad. Look at the pictures. This is how bad it really is. But then also not necessarily having to use such drastic pictures because it could have an adverse effect later on in that child's life or in even directly to the siblings who are still in school, you know, it's always, it's a question and it's definitely something that needs to be researched. So I'm really hoping that like, you know, you get around to that one, (laughs) you or somebody else who's able to like, you know, do that research because, uh, it definitely, I think it would help guide parents in how they divulge information. I know like I, in a personal group, there was actually a lot of conversation around that about, Hey, my teenage child doesn't want me to post anything like nothing. They didn't want that. Like no updates, didn't want anyone to know that they had cancer and they were, the parent was struggling. They're like, like, I feel like my hands are tied and I feel like I can't even share with my family online, like the day to day and what's going on. And the advice that people were, you know, spouting out was anywhere between honor your kid's decision or um, just create a, you know, a page and you're allowed to post like you're, you should be allowed to post about that. And it's like, well, (laughs) like they are teens now. And I guess they should have a lot more say in, in what, how they're represented online. And so, you know, it's, it's just a, it's a tough one. It's a tough situation. And I think it's definitely more difficult for families that have older kids. So. Right. And it's such a challenge too, because social media has only been around for a few years. Mm -hmm. It's not like we can call up survivors in their twenties and thirties and really ask them about this because in many ways it wouldn't have existed. Well, I mean, (laughs) I was around when Facebook was, um, just for college students. So it was a long time. I was part of that, like the intro crowd. (laughs) So I think it's been like, let me see, hold on about 15 years, 15 years. That's fair. I will say I do primarily (laughs) use Instagram. That's mostly where Instagram is newer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but that is a good point that potentially with Facebook, there could actually be some of that that's been around for quite a while. I try, you know, I actually did try and ask a group, but I got moderated. <laughs> they were like, you can't ask this type of question in the group. And I'm like, but I really want to know, like, how do I navigate this as a parent. Like I, I want to make sure that I'm doing my child right in this situation, you know? So yeah, (laughs) that's funny. I always ask like really, um, provoking questions, thought provoking (laughs) questions. Absolutely. Um, so what are the areas of mental health that you feel are not being addressed as it is right now in the world of pediatric cancer? One thing that we haven't touched on really fully, I think is just the consistency of support being available for siblings. 
so I see like it kind of it seems like it kind of depends on the hospital in terms of like are there support groups available are there opportunities Um, I see a lot of nonprofits really trying to work and address this as well Um, and I think that is definitely one area that I would like to explore a little bit more is how can we make these things available consistently when again sometimes in like a given geographic area there might be a wide range of ages of siblings or they're far away from one another and so trying to get these kids all together it can be hard but I think that's an investment that is really really worth it because their lives get turned upside down too. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I definitely, I can attest to that because my child, you know, I don't think people realize that it does affect the whole family. And I mean, even down to, um, when we celebrated, we, we celebrated several milestones and even at the diagnosis, like we were flooded with gifts if we had a milestone, we would get gifts. Um, but they were all for my cancer child, you know, and the older sibling, he's not much older. He really felt overlooked. Um, his whole world was turned upside down. He didn't get to see me as much as he did. He wasn't allowed to play with friends really, because I mean, we did, we, had to do it during COVID, you know? Um, and even before COVID we had traveled. And so we pulled him out of school because we decided that we felt that it was more important for him to be with us as a family, um, and spend time with us together because we didn't know what the prognosis really was going to be for our child. Um, we felt that it was more important for us to spend time together than for him to be at school and to, to feel our our absence because it was Christmas time and he wasn't, he was supposed to be a part of like a play, you know, Christmas play. And then like the Christmas party that your parents are there and just a bunch of different Christmas activities. And he wasn't getting to participate in it or his parents weren't going to be there. You know, it's not the same, even if it is like donuts with mom or donuts with dad, it's like muffins with mom and donuts with dad. Like he wasn't going to have us for that. And I'm like, I'd rather him not know what he's missing out on, on some of these things. Right. And just bring him with us. And so, you know, his whole life was turned upside down. And one of the things that we really tried our best was to not say, we're doing this because your brother has cancer. Like we didn't want the oldest one to feel like everything was because you know, my child's cancer was ruining his plans for everything. It was, oh, well, everybody, you know, no one's in school right now because of COVID or, um, yeah, we did talk to my six-year-old about COVID. So (laughs) I think we talked to him about cancer. We got to talk to him about coronavirus. It can't be, you know, that one's, (laughs) I'm like, I don't know which one's worse. Um, you know, just seeing how his life was turned upside down and he's done really, really well, but I do wish that the hospital would do more for them. Um, I even asked like our local hospital, I was like, Hey, um, can I get my child in for play therapy? Like the sibling. And they're like, sorry, no, it's just, we only work with 
the child going through critical illness. And there, that's it. There was no other resource available. They're like, we can, we can send you to another play therapist if you'd like. And it's like, well, do they have experience working with families in our situation? You know, because they might have experience with kids with ADHD and behavioral issues, but it's like, what about critical illness? Like, it's kind of a big deal, you know? So, um, so yeah, so I, I would say there was definitely, we haven't, and you know, I'm going to, I'm going to fess up. We have not put my oldest in therapy because we literally were about to, and then coronavirus hit the week that I was supposed to go do in the parent consult and all that stuff. And we were like, we have to put this on hold. And at that age, like, I just don't think he would really have benefit from meeting a therapist online, <laughs> you know, like there's no rapport there. And so, um, yeah, it kind of stinks. The, the kids, the siblings definitely aren't impacted and there's just not a whole lot of support for them, unfortunately. And I wish that there was, I really do, you know, and people like, like I was mentioning, people just don't even think that it impacts them. You know, it's like, Right. You don't and realize. I will say one, one of the stories for me from college that was kind of a turning point in this sort of feeling like a hobby to really feeling like a career. We, um, so we actually requested to have an ambassador from Alex's Lemonade. And this is something that you or your listeners might be interested in, maybe not so much during uh, COVID, but yeah. definitely after. So anybody who has like a significant connection to pediatric cancer can register to be an ambassador. And then if someone in your area is having an event, you can like go and share your story and just kind of take part in that event. And this was something we really wanted to do. And we were paired with a sibling ambassador. Um, her name is Anna and she's a super sibling to her younger sister, Isabella who's diagnosed with neuroblastoma at age nine months, and she's now nine. And then Isabella also has a twin sister named Jacqueline. And I remember when we were told, like, this is who you're going to be paired with, we were so excited because it was like, they have three kids, we can spoil them all. Like, we were, you know, we had all these plans, like, it never even occurred to us that we would only give things to the child diagnosed. Like, it was always there are three of them. And we were just excited to be able to connect. Like we didn't really have a whole lot of that like face-to-face -face and like really getting to hear someone's story. So we didn't think a whole lot about like the speech aspect. Like we knew that Anna, who was I think like 13-ish at the time, we knew that she was gonna come give a speech, but we didn't really like have any parameters on that or anything. It was mm -hmm. just like, say whatever you want. We're glad to have somebody here. But she got up on that stage and the things that she told us about her experience as a sibling just shocked me. The way that other kids treated her, the way that she had to sort of live with the knowledge that at that time, they were basically just waiting for treatment options to become available for her little sister and to know that they were just racing against the clock to try and save her life. And thankfully now she's doing really well, but I just remember watching this 
really young girl talk to hundreds of people that were in the audience that night and thinking like, she doesn't get to walk away from this. Like, Mm -hmm. sure, she doesn't have to advocate. And meanwhile, she's raised like tens of thousands of dollars through her own nonprofit, Anna's Bake Sale Foundation. And it's like, she doesn't have to do any of that, but like, this is her life. And I just kind of knew like in that moment that I needed to be doing something too. And like, I needed to be doing more because kids like her weren't being heard. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that, you know, she was placed in your path so that you would be aware of that, that need, because there is such a need. And that's, you know, doing family chemotherapy, it basically is, my goal is to address the needs of everybody in the family, also the cancer child, but also realizing that the entire family system is impacted. You know, it is traumatic for everybody and trying to create some resources and direct people to resources that um, will help the family because there's lots and lots of rightly so, you know, organizations that are focused on the research for curing the childhood cancer or finding treatments and whatnot. But um, there isn't a whole lot for the siblings and for the families that are having to fight alongside, you know, it is a, is truly a family fight. I mean, like I could tell you stories of like, like my six-year-old talking my child into wearing, you know, his eye patch, um, try not to get emotional here, but you know, like, um, because my son had radiation damage to his eye, um, we have to patch his his eye that had the, uh, his good eye, right. The one that didn't have any radiation damage. Um, we have to patch that one to keep, um, the other eye working essentially, because the brain at that age apparently is just so phenomenal that it will, it will basically, the brain will shut off the, the eye that's not working as well. And it will rely solely on the stronger eye. And so, um, we patch, the good eye to help keep the the mm-hmm. bad eye from going, you know, um, blind basically. And, you know, we had a lot of fights with my child. Like he doesn't want to wear, I'm like two hours, three hours, like let, try to negotiate with him, you know, zero hours, like whatever, right. Trying to get him to put this eye patch on. And when I had to sit down and explain to my child, I'm like, okay, the reason why you have to wear this is because it's like a light switch in your brain, if you don't put the eye patch on your, um, your brain will think that there's no need for it anymore and turn off the light switch and it won't ever come back on and it will be dark in that eye forever. And explaining that to him. And then the, you know, my, my older son being there, he started, you know, trying to help in that process. Like he has been his cheerleader at times and encourage her like, Hey, you can do this. Like it's only for a little bit longer, or you want to, you know, make sure you put your patch on. Cause you don't want to turn the light switch off on, on your eye or take your medicine. It's very important for you to take your medicine. Like when he would argue taking certain medicines, you know? And so what that has to do to him, like psychologically, you know, just the impact on him 
on his mental health as an older sibling at such a young age, feeling the need to be responsible um, and feeling that pressure also that like, we're going to do this all together. Like this is a, a family thing. Like he didn't just turn his back and just go back to playing. He was like, no, like I'm his brother. It's still my duty to like help protect him, you know? And so, yeah, sibling health is definitely important. And so I'm so glad that you're using that as one of your areas of focus. So thank you. Thank you for doing that for all the cancer families, you know, um, is there anything else that you would like to share? Nothing that comes to mind right now. I really appreciate you sending me questions ahead of time and really asking about a lot of different aspects of things that I've been studying and things that I've cared about for a long time. It's been a great conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. You know, I'm going to be picking your brain all the time because <laughs> you have a wealth of knowledge and you're the expert in this. And, um, I definitely, you know, your the posts that you put on Instagram are phenomenal. Is Instagram the only platform that you use? Currently, yes. And okay. I do plan to keep it that way for the time being, just because it's hard to like format content to all the mm -hmm. different sites. Mm -hmm. um, so yes. And I will say to anyone listening, my DMs are always open. If there's a topic that you want to, to read about, to hear about, I'm always open to suggestions. And that is so true because that's how I started hounding you. <laughs> like I, I need some help. Um, but I do, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing our conversations because there's stuff that we've kind of been talking about and I'm looking forward to research articles because that is at the end of the day, that's how we, we help make a change, you know? So absolutely. And I am very early in my career. So there'll be a lot more coming from me. And over time, it's going to be more and more of my own work. And like you said in the beginning, I just want to make the world a better place for kids, for their siblings, for their families, because it's so needed. Well, thank you again. And I will probably call you and tell you to come back on and talk about some other topics because, you know, you're the expert. <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for taking time to meet with me. I know it's thank you so much for taking some time and I really appreciate everything that you were able to share with us. And if anybody wants to follow Allie, make sure that you find her on Instagram. Um, if you, if you're linked with me on family chemotherapy on Instagram, you will see a lot of my repost and it has her Instagram tag on there, but if not, it's out Al Alexandra. Is it under, is there a dot or an underscore? You said dot. dot. Right? So Alexandra dot. Neenan. Neenan. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandra dot Neenan. And, um, if you can't find her, absolutely. Um, I'll make sure and add your tag to this podcast and put it in the description. So anybody looking to find your resources, they'll be able to get, get a hold of that. And she also has directed me to some really amazing organizations that are still, um, very active in the mental health field. And one of those was, uh, I believe it was a Maddie's miracle, Maddie miracle or Maddie's miracle, right? I think it's Maddie miracle. Maddie miracle. 
Yeah. And that one, um, that also has a lot of information. So she has been a wealth of knowledge in all things mental health. And so if you have questions, I promise you, she will probably have an answer. And if not, she'll tell you where she, where you can get an answer. So thank you so much for taking some time uh, to meet with us today. And I can't wait to have you back on. It's truly been my pleasure. Thank you, Allie. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for hanging in there with me. And if you have found this podcast helpful, or you just love the mission for family chemotherapy, please kindly rate this podcast. If you want to support this podcast and ministry, please consider becoming a patron. You can visit patreon.com forward slash family chemotherapy. You can become a patron for as little as $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. Also, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest for additional resources that I do share daily. Please tag and share your friends and other pediatric cancer families that you think would benefit from any of the content from Family Chemotherapy. Thank you, and I can't wait to share the next episode. Together, we can help heal the whole family.